<clears throat> Thank you, Bob. <clears throat> My name is Joe. I'm an alcoholic. Because of a loving God that works through the program and the people of Alcoholics Anonymous, I haven't had a drink of alcohol since August 27th of 1988, and I'm as thankful as I know how to be for that period of sobriety. It is so good to be here with y'all. Um, I want to thank the committee, and Juanita in particular, for calling and inviting us out uh, to be with you all this weekend. It's, it's always a privilege to be able to participate in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, but especially when we've got uh, a group like you all that are so dedicated, AAs and Alamans that work together. And I can't tell you what refreshing uh, thing that is for me. Uh, a lot of places we go, they don't look at it that way, and it's a shame because I believe that we all got sick together, and we need to all get well together. And, and you all do a great job of that here. <clears throat> Bob said, he and A.J. picked us up at the airport last night, and I felt really bad about having them come out that late all the way. I didn't know they were already here. <laughs> they had to drive all the way in to get us and then back out here, but it was a, <clears throat> it was a great drive, and we had a lot of fun just visiting, and that's what we do here. You know, we just, we just do, a, do a lot of visiting, and golly, I, I can't think of a better place to be than with my people this weekend. I've been a lot of places and done a lot of firsts, but this is the first time I ever got a gold star for doing any of it. <laughs> I didn't realize that. I, I noticed we had a gold star, and I didn't know just a while ago what that was all about. I thought it maybe it was give you coffee or something. I didn't know, but it's great that y'all have all these traditions that y'all have developed over all these years, and it shows. And you should be proud of the roundup that you all have put together here. I don't think I've ever been anywhere that we've been treated so gracious and so kind, and and uh, people have just been wonderful to us, and we want to thank you all for, for your kind hospitality. Up until right now, everything's been all right. <laughs> Reminds me of a story about a little boy I knew down in Texas once. He was about six years old, and and he had never spoken a day in his life, not a word. He had never spoken a word. And as you can imagine, he was quite spoiled uh, by his loving mother and father. And uh, they did everything for him, as you might well imagine. And, and uh, they were quite concerned that he had never been able to speak. So one morning, uh, his mother was sitting, uh, making oatmeal and, and sitting at the, uh, standing at the kitchen sink washing dishes. And... His father was doing what he did. He was on the way out the door uh, to work. And all of a sudden, they heard emanating from his mouth, this damned oatmeal is lumpy. <laughs> and it startled him, as you might go to expect. And, and, and his mother ran to his side and just kissed him and hugged him and touched him and said, Oh, my God, we're so happy. You finally said something. The dad had dropped the briefcase in the hall and came running into the kitchen. Just they all broke into tears. Just so happy that the little boy had finally been able to speak. And his dad asked him. He said, "You know, it's been six years, and 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 you chose today to speak. How is that?" He said, "Up to now, everything's been all right." <laughs> So I kind of understand. I understand what he, what he's talking about. 
<clears throat> you know, uh, I, I'm so glad that, that, the, that, as I said earlier, that AAs and airlines get together like this. I, I, I've got a, a good friend, a good friend of ours, a couple in AA and airline back in Dallas, and his name is Paul. Her name is Linda. And Paul had gone to have some insurance physicals done here a while back, and and uh, as uh, as the doctor was reading all the charts, he said, "Paul, I, I really have some bad news. He said we've done these tests about three or four times, and they've come back positive every time. And I hate to break this news to you, but you have 24 hours to live." And of course, that was quite shocking to Paul. And uh, he said, "You sure you didn't make any mistakes?" He said, "No, there's no mistakes made." He said, I'm just sorry to have to break this to you, but, but you have 24 hours. Just, just make the best of it. So he went home, and, and he told Linda, broke the news to Linda, how, what, a, what a sad, sad ending their marriage was going to have. We, I've got 24 hours, he says, to live. And, and they cried, and they talked and reminisced, you know, for about the first 12 hours. And then they decided, well, it, you know, they were tired and just worn out emotionally, better go to bed. So as he went to bed, Paul rolled over, and he said, uh, he said, uh, listen, Linda, he said, do you think, he said, I've got, I've got only got eight more hours to live. He said, do you believe, think we might could make love one last time? She thought, well, that'd probably be all right. So, so they did. And so uh, way in the night, uh, uh, Paul rolled over and he nudged Linda. He said, Linda, he said, I've got four hours left. He said, do you think that we could make love just one more time? She said, Paul. I got to get up in the morning, and you don't. <laughs> I see we have a room full of my kind of Alanons. <laughs> Well, the big book says that we're to tell in a general way what happened, what we're like, what happened, what we're like today. And we spent a lot of time in both our fellowships doing that, uh, telling people what happened. And rightly, we should. Uh, that's a way we can identify one to another. And, you know, we're not the only people that do that. Uh, those earth people, as we call them out there, they, they do that, too, a lot. Give you, for instance, we could be sitting here right now, and it'd be a grinding car crash out here in the parking lot. One of us would went up there and ask him what happened. Or you're sitting at home watching TV, and you hear a big crash of dishes out there in the kitchen. You're probably going to walk out there and ask him what happened. Or you hear a young child cry out in agony. Someone would go in there and ask him what happened. You remember, don't you? I'm sure you do. About 2,000 years ago, when the Master walked this earth and he healed the blind man, and someone asked him what happened, he said, I don't know. Once I was blind, and now I see. You ask me what happened? I don't know. Once I was drunk, and now I'm sober. I tell you what I think happened to me. I think Alcoholics Anonymous happened to me. And because of Alcoholics Anonymous, I was introduced to a loving God that I never knew existed for me. And this is my story. <clears throat> At one time, I believe I was well when I was about five or six years old. <laughs> Nothing wrong. I was born and raised in a little country town down here in Mississippi. 
and uh, everything was just okay. Uh, and then I fell in love with an older woman. Her name was Susan. She was six, and I was five. And Susan and I were up underneath her front porch steps playing show and tail or feeling squeal or one of those. <clears throat> and her mama caught us and drug us out from underneath those steps. And she looked down, because we didn't have clothes on, she looked down at me and she said, Joe Gray, if you continue to do this, your thing will fall off. I looked down at Susan and hers had already fell off. I guess I thought I was out with an older, more experienced woman. I don't know, but <clears throat> the significant thing is that is this: her mother grabbed me by the hand and took me down to my house. We lived about four or five houses down the street, and marched me into my mother's kitchen and told her what she had discovered us doing. And then she left. And after she left, my mother looked at me. She said, "Did you do that?" I said, "No, ma'am. It wasn't me." <laughs> now, I know she didn't believe that. But the significant thing for that, for me, was nothing ever was said about that incident ever again. It was just like it didn't happen. And what I heard was this. If you tell a lie and somebody believes it, it's not a lie any longer. And I spent my whole life telling people what I wanted them to believe about me and what I did and how I acted. I brought that belief right into the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous with me. And that's just the way it was. You know, I was raised around a bunch of alcoholics. Uh, my grandfather was an alcoholic. Uh, I had several uncles who were alcoholic, several cousins who were alcoholic. My father was an alcoholic. My, I've got a brother and two sisters who are alcoholic. I've got two stepchildren and one of my own that are alcoholic. Now, I'm not an alcoholic because of my relationship to any of those people. I'm an alcoholic because I drank too much alcohol. I did it all by myself. I volunteered for every drink I ever took. I even broke in line for some of them. I'm sure I did, because I used to do things like that. So I can't blame anybody for my alcoholism. I drank it all, and I uh, did so very willingly. Now, I, uh, I had my first drink when I was 15 years old that I can remember. I may have had a sip of beer or two there long when I was a kid because my father used to drink at home. And I'm sure I probably did, but I don't remember that. But I consciously remember the first one I had, I was 15. And me and three of my old pals went out to the county line. We lived in a dry county. And I bought a six-pack of Bush Bavarian. They called it Bush Bavarian in those days. Remember it like it was yesterday. And I drank all six of them. And the next thing I know, we're in a truck stop, and I'm arm wrestling a truck driver. Now, I don't know why that happened, but it just did. But it was a hot June night in 1958. And uh, I went outside, and I got sick, and I threw up. And I laid down in the back seat of that old 49 Plymouth. And after a while, the guys came out and said, let's go home. I said, no, we've got to go get some more beer. They said, well, we don't want any more beer. I said, well, I do, and you guys need to take me. So they decided, okay, we'll go back and get some more beer. Now, they didn't drink anymore. I got another six-pack, and I'm not sure how many of those I had. Maybe one, maybe two. I'm not, I'm not really sure. But the point was this. I, had, I could drink, I'd get sick, throw up, and drink some more, and those panty waists couldn't do it. So I was different than them. Now, it talks about me in Chapter 3 of the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous. Men and women... Men and women uh, 
I just lost my quote now. Alcoholics are men and women who have lost the ability to control their drinking. Well, I lost the ability to control my drinking the very first time I drank, and this is how I know that. About a year before this, we were about 14 years old. We weren't old enough to drink. I guess we were old enough, but we couldn't get it. We thought we'd smoke cigars. And we sat around this campfire on a camp out, and I smoked this big old green cigar. And I got sick as a dog. And I threw up, and I told those guys, I said, as long as I live, I'll never smoke another one of these nasty cigars. As I stand before you this evening, I've never had another cigar. Wasn't that way with alcohol. I drank it every chance I got. I stole to get it. We did everything possible to get something to drink. And I didn't know it was a sign of alcoholism. Didn't know it. I thought we were having fun. And everybody else that I ran with drank like that. I remember those bad habits that I started talking about, about stealing and things like that. That that kind of started at that age, too. I'll never forget old Red Austin had a, had a junkyard across town, and us guys would steal anything. And we started stealing car batteries first. That's how we started out. That was the days you could pop the hood on a car without having to get on, you know, go on the inside. You just, the, the hood latch was on the outside. And we'd pop a hood on a car and steal a battery and go sell it for $5 or $4 or whatever we get for it and go buy a beer. Well, it got, the police got a little... I got on our, on our case about that. So we quit doing this. We started stealing things that people didn't miss quite so readily. We started stealing scrap iron. And we'd, our yard art, anvils, it didn't make any difference. It was steel, we'd steal it. We'd take it over to where it Austin's yard, scrap yard. And we'd uh, put it in an old pickup we had and haul it in there. And he'd, he couldn't see very good. And he'd be adjusting those scales. And while he was doing that, two or three of us would stand on the back of the scales over there to kind of boost the profits. Uh, then he'd pay us our money and say, boys, take it to the back and dump it out. And we'd take it around to this scrapyard, dump it out by the fence, go back, drive around that afternoon, crawl on the fence, get it, and put it back on the truck and go around and sell it to him again the next day. We didn't have sense enough to get something different. We all, we had, I guess we knew where the hand grips were or something. We'd just get all the ways to sell them the same stuff. Years later, he said, you know, I, I thought I recognized some of that. And I'm sure he did. You know, we, we didn't have good sense. So, But those are the kind of things we did. And... Uh, I didn't suffer too many consequences early on for my drinking. In high school, I, got, I finally did get kicked off the basketball team my senior year for, for drinking. But that was okay. I could easily justify that. Uh, this old basketball coach, it was his first year there, and I didn't really like him. And I knew it was my last year there. And plus, we were having a bad season. And so it didn't mean a whole lot when he kicked me off of that, that basketball team that year. But my thing was football. I played football, and I'd gotten a scholarship to play college football. And I went off to college that next, uh, actually it was in August, when we went to, play, went to start training. And about the third week of training, I, I injured my knee, and they wanted to operate on it. And I said, no, 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 you're not operating on my knee. Like all the guys I knew that had knee surgery back in, back in the late 50s, early 60s, had a some of them never could play ball again. A lot of them never walked real good again. So uh, that was before the scope surgery. And so I said, no, I'm, not, I'm just going to have to rehab it on my own. They said, well, if you do that without our medical staff, then we'll, we'll rescind your scholarship. And I said, well, it's okay. You can have it. And I'll go to Texas. Well, I'd been to Texas once. 
when I was about 12, had gone out to visit an uncle uh, who lived there, and uh, he had told me once, if college doesn't work out for whatever reason, said, you've always got a job with me, and, uh, and I didn't even know what he did. But I called him, and I showed up. I drove the bus. Uh, 20, it took us 24 hours to get out there on the bus. And I showed up to Wichita Falls, Texas, in, uh, in the summer, in the fall of uh, 1961. And, uh, and I found out what he did. He was in the used oil field equipment business. And, and what he had in mind for me was to learn the business. And he started me out at the bottom and uh, soon graduated to driving a truck. And I was driving an 18-wheeler, hauling oil field equipment all over West Texas and Oklahoma and New Mexico and Arkansas, I mean, uh, uh, Kansas and, and, and uh, Arizona and around. And, and so I got to see a lot of the country. And my alcoholism really kind of kicked into another gear because at that point I had drinking, been drinking mostly beer. I drank, I loved bourbon when I could get it, but it was pretty expensive on my kind of salary. And, and so uh, I drank beer, but I was driving this truck, and this other guy was driving another truck, and we were hauling a drilling rig out to Arizona. And we stopped in Tucumcari, New Mexico one night, and uh, we weren't in a big hurry, so we didn't have to stay in those little sleeper cabs. And he said, let's just get a, a motel room. So we did. And uh, we got in this little motel, and he went across the highway, and he bought two quarts of Champion Bourbon and came back. And two little old twin beds in this little uh, motel, and I'm sitting on one bed, and he's sitting on the other. We're passing that jug of champion back and forth watching the test pattern on the TV. <laughs> now, we were two people who ordinarily would not mix, but alcohol was a common denominator there. And uh, so that's the way I drank from the get-go. And I was in good physical condition in those days, and so I didn't, I didn't have any problem staying up all night, drinking, driving a truck all day. It was no big deal. I thought everybody could do all that. So I did this for a few months, probably six or eight months, and, and one night, we were, again, we were out in Arizona, and it was, it was one of those long, old, straight asphalt highways, and uh, about two in the morning, <clears throat> and I'm driving, and I start thinking. And the thought comes to me, you know, if you were married, you'd probably have a job in town. You'd get off of this old, old road out here. And uh, when I got back to town, I told this one suspect I had, this is my idea. I, I, I dated her a few times, and I told her about this idea. She said, well, that's good. Let's get married. So we did. We got married. And... Uh, I did get off that road. I got a job in town, a good, good job. I really liked it, best job I'd ever had. It was better than the one I, I had with my uncle. At least it was making more money, and where it was a lot bigger company. And so things were good. Uh, but we'd been married 11 months, and we had our first child. And right after that baby was born, it was almost like somebody reached inside of me and flipped a switch that says, you can't go home anymore. And that's just the way I felt. This, uh, this job I had was in the oil field-related equipment business, uh, but it was right across the street from my all-time favorite bar. Now, I was always a bar drinker. I loved the bars. I loved the smell of them. I loved the cigarette smoke. I loved it all. And I just was attracted to places like that. And I remember at 5 o'clock is when I got off and I would say, I'm just going to go over and have one or a couple 
And I'd wind up staying until it closed. And I did it night after night after night. And I would go in that bar, and if we, if we got any real bar drinkers in here, I'm fixing to appeal to you. You'll know exactly what I'm talking about. I'd go, and this, you know, this was a high-class bar. I gotta, I gotta admit that it's a, it was a, it, well, it, it's kind of a French name, the Wee Lounge. <laughs> it was spelt in French, you know, so it was a high-class bar. But I'd go in there at five o'clock, and the smoke would be down about right here. And you could hear the pool balls clacking back over in the corner, the jukebox over here, and George Jones and Buck Owens. And all those old favorites were singing and carrying on, and the cute little waitresses in there with those tight wranglers on. I was already home. I couldn't go home. I was already there. And I just, that's just the way it, it affected me. Night after night, my wife would admonish me and say, why do you do this? If you loved me, you wouldn't drink like this. You wouldn't stay out and do the things you do. And I loved her, I suppose, as well as I was capable. But I could not do it, and I didn't know why. And one night, I came in. It was my usual. It was probably 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. And I stumbled through the door this night and fell on the floor, apparently, because she went and woke the baby up, and she brought the baby and was holding her up like this over my head saying, if you love this baby, you wouldn't drink like this. And I loved that baby, and I couldn't stop. And I didn't know why. That was 1963. I could have used this program in 1963 had I known it existed. Probably wouldn't have come had I known it. You know what they say about us. We're just not ready until we're ready. And I had a whole lot more getting ready to do, as you're going to hear in a minute. I don't know about anybody in this room but me. But I'm the kind of alcoholic that has that sixth sense right back here. I still have it today. I can tell you when the other shoe is about to fall. And I went to work that day, and I had that feeling. I walked in, and they called me in the office and said, uh, we're going to have to ask you for your keys, and we're going to have to terminate you. And I said, for what? Because I love this job. And they said, well, you're in charge of the inventory here, and uh, I was an inventory control guy, and they said, we've got a whole bunch of hand tools missing, and we figure you're in on the deal. You must know something about it. And I said, well, I don't know anything about missing hand tools at all. They said, well, we just can't take a chance, so you're, we're going to fire you anyway. And, boy, you're talking about having a deep, deep resentment. I had a deep resentment at those folks. Now, I had been stealing money off of that gasoline credit card for about a year and a half. But I could easily justify that because they weren't really paying me what I was worth. And, uh, and I had to have some way to supplement my, my drinking. And, uh, so any self-respecting alcoholic that I know, this is the way I approach that. Well, and I didn't tell them this. This is what I told them in my head. If this is the way you're going to do me, I'll just go to work for one of your competitors, and we'll just break your rotten old company. That's what we'll do. I went all the way down to Louisiana got another job with one of their competitors in the oil fields. And uh, as far as I know, they're still in business. But my intent was just that, to break their rotten old company. But I go off down there, and I get another job. And I'm driving a better car. And I'm wearing better clothes. I'm drinking better whiskey and drinking in better places sometimes. But never did I change what I was doing. And I couldn't go home, and I was still doing out there what we do, you know, in those old bars and things and dives that we hang out in. And 
So I do this for a while longer, and uh, one night I'm over in Natchez, Mississippi, and I'm drunk, and I've been over a couple of days, and I'm drunk, and I'm heading back over to Louisiana, and I get back in, I don't know, 7 o'clock that morning, I just go straight to work. I didn't go home. I just kept working. I was what I was doing always, and it was always working. And uh, that day about noon, I, I drifted off to sleep while driving down the highway and dead centered an oak tree and totaled a brand-new company car. And I woke up in the emergency room, and uh, I wasn't hurt all that bad. I mean, I had 15, 20 stitches in my face, and my teeth were all loose, and broke the ignition key off in my right kneecap and a few little things like that. And uh, it was no big deal. And, and this doctor sewed me all up, and he looked at me, and he said, and he was the first one that ever asked me this. He said, do you think you might have a problem with alcohol? I said, no, alcohol don't have anything to do with this. Uh, this was a lack of sleep that caused this. And I believed that. And I didn't really think about why he asked me that question until after I got sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm sure now the reason he asked me that is he could smell the alcohol coming out of my pores. Because I could. I can smell it right standing right here right now. I can smell it laying on that table. I can smell the alcohol in the air. It had to be coming from me. But that didn't get my attention. But I got that sixth sense feeling. You know how that is. And so I met this old boy with Standard Oil Company. He said, you know, you need to go to Houston with me. He said, I've got one of my customers down there who, who sells uh, refined oil products to a lot of the chemical companies. And he said, they're looking for guys just like you. I left my family in Louisiana and went off down there with him, and I, and I got a job. They hired me. I moved my family there, and, boy, things really looked up. I, now I was wearing better clothes, driving a better car, and drinking better whiskey and drinking a lot better places. The day I went to work there, they said, okay, we have a box out at the Astrodome. We expect you to take these customers out and use it. We have all these private club cards. We expect you to take these customers there and entertain them. And, and they, if we have a private hunting lease and a private fishing lake, we expect you to take them, buy you some whiskey and put it in your trunk of your car, take them to play golf. And I'm thinking, boy, y'all got the right cat now. I'll tell you this. <laughs> And so I, I did that, and things were going great, and I was having fun, and I still couldn't go home. I was still out in those bars doing what we do. And it wasn't too many months later that uh, they called us in one day and said, you know, we've, uh, we've sold the company to a bunch of guys from Philadelphia. I didn't like them. Uh, all, they all reminded me of James Mason. You know, they had the little clipped almost almost English accent and they wore these three-piece suits for God's sakes. I'd never seen a three-piece suit except in the movies. You know, the kind with the vest, you know, and the gold watch a little chain that goes across like this. I just didn't like them. And so anyway, they said, okay, you guys are doing a great job. Uh, well, we want you to do, keep doing a great job but quit spending all this money. Y'all are spending way too much money. We're a conservative company. I thought, well, that's all you think about us. And I'm thinking, well, I know how to manipulate expense accounts. So that wasn't a big shocker. So I went to work doing that, and nothing changed much. And my idea when I had a couple of cases of whiskey in my car was I'd give one to a customer, and I'd take two for me and my friends. And uh, that's kind of how my, my divvying up process worked. Well, we did that for a few weeks, and then they said, uh, oh, by the way, and this was one of the things that attracted me to this company to start with. They had a, they had a on-site oil changing place and an on-site car washing facility, 
and on-site gasoline pumps, and all you had to do as a as a prima donna salesman was go in and hang your keys on a little nail. Some guy would come out and pick it up and take it out back and have it washed and greased and the oil changed and, and filled up and just nice and just really treats you like you deserved. You bring your keys back and hang them on your little name tag thing, and that was great. And they said, by the way, we're going to take all this out, and here's a humble credit card. You go down to the humble station and get your gas and all that stuff. I thought, well, if that's all you care about us, I think I'll just quit your rotten old company. I didn't have an ego problem, you see, and <clears throat> so I quit and went across town and got another job selling heavy equipment in about a week, and I liked that. Uh, I was good at that, and, and, and it afforded me the same kind of operations that I'd been doing, going, staying out late, drinking, and carrying on how we do, and uh, so I did this for a while, and uh, I had a, I met some of the guys within the company at other locations, and I'd met one from Dallas, and he called me one day and said, look. We'd like you to consider a transfer to Dallas. Said uh, we've got an opening, and we'd like to fly you up and let you see the lay of the land and see if you'd be willing to take a transfer. I said, "Sure, that's fine." So I flew to Dallas. They picked me up at the old love field. Uh, my prospective boss and two or three—I think it was three of his other salesmen, all about my age—they didn't like to go home to their wives either. And we went out that night and went straight to a bunch of bars, stayed out drinking and carousing all night long. And they took me back to the airport about seven thirty, eight o'clock the next morning. We never went to the office. I didn't even know what my territory, my responsibilities were really going to be. But I accepted that transfer because I was with my people. I knew it. I was instantly, I was, I was just, I was, they had me. And that was in August of 1968. And I moved to Dallas and nothing changed. Uh, we, had, uh, we had three kids. The first one I'll tell you kind of quickly, and I'll give you, I'll save a whole lot of words by giving you these next few little phrases. That first child, well, she was born while we lived in Wichita Falls, and I was doing what I should have been doing. I was home with her. We were in bed asleep. Her bag was packed. Her water broke. She woke me up. I got the bag, called the doctor, and headed to the hospital, like you're supposed to. When the second child was born, who was still living in Wichita Falls, I was been drunk in a motel down in Arlington, Texas, down by Fort Worth, for about a week. And I knew that baby was due pretty soon, but I wasn't sure when. It was on February the 22nd, 1966, and I started home for some reason, a blinding snowstorm. And I pulled into Wichita Falls in front of the house just in time to see her walking out the front door with her bag packed. Her water had already broken, and she was getting ready to drive herself to the hospital. So I got in kind of on the tail end of that one. And the third one was born. We were living in Fort Worth, and I was drunk in a bar down on West 7th Street. And some of my friends came to get me, and I was too drunk to drive. And they said, your wife's in the hospital, and she's about to have that baby. And they drove me to the hospital. And I went in just in time to see that baby born and tell her she did a good job and looked at him through the window. And I went right back to that bar. I don't even know who stayed with those other two kids that night. Probably one of our neighbors, but I never asked because I didn't care. That's the kind of thing that alcohol led me to do. So anyway, we're, we're in Dallas and... Uh, and nothing had changed. You know, I'm still doing the same thing, and, and only I'm getting worse. Uh, I'm getting much worse. And, and I'm now beginning to pay a few, a few uh, physical 
cost for that, you know. I'm not eating right, and I'm not, I'm, I'm losing weight, and, you know, I'm just, I'm just not doing what I'm supposed to be doing. And, uh, and so we, my wife and I had lots of, lots of bad, bad times, arguments and so forth, and I'd leave and, uh, for a few days. I don't know if we got any leavers in here, but I used to do that every now and then, you know, not take everything. But one day, one Friday afternoon, I'm in my favorite watering hole doing what I did, and I started thinking while drinking. No, Norm Alpha used to say an alcoholic should either think or drink, and she didn't do both at the same time. Well, I was thinking and drinking that day, and uh, the thought came in here, you know your problem, is that family is just holding you back. You need to be single, so what you need to do is get a divorce. That was the answer to me. And so it's about 3 o'clock, and I went home. I thought, well, I'll get my stuff and get out before she gets home with those kids from school. And so uh, I made it, and I got everything pretty well uh, packed in my company car. I wasn't totally bad. I was going to leave her the family car. I almost escaped. And then she balked with that middle child who was seven years old at the time. And they walked in the back door and they saw me, what was going on. They saw my car full of my stuff. And they, I'd done this, as I said before, but this time I had it all. And as bad a husband as I had been, and as bad a father as I was, she looked at me and she said, don't leave us. What's going to happen to us if you leave? And she started crying. And then my son, who I said was seven, and he started crying. He said, Dad, don't leave us. What's going to happen to us? And he got down on his hands and knees, and he was holding me around my right ankle, looking up at me in those big brown eyes and tears were streaming down his face, begging me not to leave. And I kicked him from around my ankles as he were a mad dog. Sent him rolling down that hall and banged up against that wall. And I turned around and walked out of that house and never gave it a thought. And tonight, 30 years later, he's over in Iraq doing what all those brave men and women are doing over there. But I never thought about that again until I got sober in Alcoholics Anonymous about that action that day. Within 30 minutes, I was back in that bar and I was drinking again. And nothing, nothing changed for me. We did get that divorce, and it was ugly, and, and uh, those kids suffered a great deal. And so I was finally single, and I'd go to my favorite bar and see my, my uh, good friends, you know, the ones I just met last night in that other bar. And I would announce that I was divorced now. And they said, we didn't know you were married. <laughs> and I can understand that because I sure didn't act like it. You know, I just went and did as I pleased. I had no regard for anybody or anything but myself. And uh, so I stayed single for a while and just ripped and roared the streets of Dallas and Fort Worth till it was, oh, the world looked level. And one day, all my good friends, as I said, the ones I just met, were getting married. And they'd ask me, when are you going to get married again? I said, oh, man, not me. Me and marriage just don't work. And I'll never get married again. I said, that's just the moment it's not for me. I bet it wasn't three or four days later. I'm over in Fort Worth at the Colonial Golf Tournament, minding my very own business in the bar. Down the 19th hole, I look across over there, and there she was. Just sitting just right over there. 
And so you know how we are now. You'll get to hear the rebuttal of this in the morning. And I'm going to try to be as accurate as I know how to be. Um, but I have to preface it by saying this. I might not be telling you exactly the way it is, but I'm telling you the way I remember it. Anyway, she's sitting over there with a girlfriend, and I walk over there and kind of plop down next to him and try to buy him a drink and talk to him. And so we talked a few minutes, and I said, oh, by the way, uh, give me your phone number. I'd like to call you up, and we'll go out. She said, I'm not giving you my number. She said, guys like you are too much trouble. I said, give me your number. She said, no, I'm not. I, you know, I don't want you calling me. I'm not going out with you. So I told her friend, I said, give me her number. So she just jotted it down on a, on a book of matches and handed it over to me. She said, give me that number back. Don't you call me. I'm not going out with you. I've already told you. You are too much trouble. I said, yeah, I'm going to call you out. I'll call you up. So here, I don't know, it's an hour later. She said, all right, big boy, if you want to go out, let's go out tonight. Oh, I said, well, I can't tonight. And she said, why not? She, she, I said, well, I, I've already got a date. She said, well, why don't you break it? I said, oh, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't break a date with her to go out with you, and I wouldn't break a date with you to go out with her. Now, she told me much later she thought that meant I had character. <laughs> Instead, I was one. And, uh, but the next day, I did call her, and we did go out that next day. And if uh, we can manage... Till November, we'll be married 27 years. <laughs> but not a day of that was easy. <clears throat> she had two kids by uh, her uh, previous marriage, and I had those three. Now, I can only speak for me. All I knew is, is, is what I did the first time did not work. And I was going to do a complete 180 this time around. That's all I knew. So that's what I did. And we got married, and uh, we just shuffled those five kids together like a deck of cards. And said, y'all be kids. And they did. One of mine, my oldest one, she came to live with us in about two months. And the second one, he came to live with us in about four months. So now we got four kids all at once, just like this in this new marriage. And they were driving us crazy. Just to give you a quick example. I'd get a call at the office, and they'd say, Do you have one named Kevin? I said, Well, I sure do. Would you come over here and pick him up? He just tried to burn down Hillcrest High School. Sure, I'll go by and get him on the way home. So I'd stop and grab him. The next day, another school would call. Do you have one named Stacy? Well, we sure do. Would you come get her? She's laying down in the infirmary and having that far away feeling again. Well, I knew what that was. I'd had it a few times. So <clears throat> the next day, another school would call. Do you have one named Darby? Well, we do. Would you come get him? Him and another kid just jumped out of the second floor window and they're chasing a rabbit across the football field. Yeah, I'll come get him and I'll go by and get him. Next day, the Dallas police would call. Do you have one named Darby and Kevin? Well, we sure do. Well, we have them in jail. What are they in jail for this time? Well, they threw a water balloon off the toll road and knocked a windshield out of a lady's classic automobile. I'm thinking, golly, it's probably a Bentley or a Rolls Royce or something. I get downtown, and it's a 1960 Dodge Dart. But the lady said it was a classic because it was old enough to qualify, so... Go down and get them out of jail. And, I mean, it was just something like that 
all the time. Next day, FBI called. Do you have one named Deidre and Stacy? Well, we sure do. Well, do they know it's against the, it's a federal offense to make long distance phone calls and just charge them to at numbers at random out of the phone book? I said, they probably don't, but I'll explain it to them. <laughs> so we got a good workout that way. And we didn't know it was alcoholism. Didn't have a clue. So our second oldest was a senior in college. And she was having some difficulties, not with school. She made great grades, but she called one day and said she wasn't doing well. And she thought she needed some help. And she okay. Went down and uh, flew down to Austin and, and uh, drove over to her dorm. and or Actually, she's in an apartment at that time to see what the problem was. And she couldn't stop drinking. And she said, I think I need some help. And so... We didn't know what to do. Kay brought her back to Dallas. She only had two weeks to go in her first semester, or, yeah, the first semester to uh, to have that behind her, but she said she couldn't wait. She needed help right now, so she had to drop, and she was making good grades. She was on the dean's list. Anyway, she, Kay brought her back to Dallas, and uh, we didn't know what to do with her, and uh, uh, we took her to a treatment center. They had a, those TV ads all over the TV in, in the 80s, these treatment centers. So anyway, we took her to this treatment center and uh, checked her in there, and they said, well, we'll call you in a couple of days after we do some evaluation. And so they did, and said, yeah, she, she's an alcoholic, but she's also bulimic, and we can't treat that here. We're going to send her to our sister hospital in Chicago. And so they put her on American Airlines, and boom, she was gone. She had been gone, I don't know, two or three days, and the second one came to us. He said, well, if you think she's got troubles, listen to what all I'm doing. And uh, one of his, he'd been drinking, of course, and taking some other things. And his right leg had been numb for about eight or nine months, and he'd been afraid to say anything about it. And uh, so we took him to another treatment center, and they took him in. And two or three days later, the next to the youngest came to us. He said, well, if you think they got troubles, listen to what all I'm doing. And he put a little laundry list of things that he'd been involved in. So we took him to a third treatment center, and they took him in. So... Within 10 days, three of our five kids was in alcohol treatment, and we did not know what hit us. And so we'd go to this, this the first one we went to, uh, they, this treatment center on a visiting day, they told us that, you know, you guys need to go to Alnon. And I didn't know what that was, and I'm not sure Kay did either, but they told us, and they said, you need to go and get this little card signed. If you don't, we don't, we don't know you've been to an Alnon meeting, you're not going to be able to get in and see these kids Wednesday or whatever day it was. And it didn't bother me a whole lot if I saw them because they were just a pain in my neck. And she said she still loved them. And she'd want me, she'd like me to, you know, go with her. So I did. I went to these Alan meetings with her. And, I, and there were some really nice ladies there. And there weren't any men in the meetings we were going to at that time. But there were some nice ladies. And they treated me very nicely. But I couldn't get the connection. All of their husbands were drunk. Well, my husband wasn't drunk. I had a bunch of crazy drunk kids, you know. That's what was bothering me. So we started going to those Al-Anon meetings and taking our little thing up there and showing them we went and all that. And so we did out for the whole month, just one kids. And we'd visit one treatment center on two days a week and go down. To, he was north of, 30 miles north of Dallas, and then it was 30 miles south of Dallas. And we'd go down there the other two other days a week and visit them. And then the one in Chicago would have about a two-hour conference call on a Saturday afternoon with her and her counselor. And that was our life for several weeks. Actually, the one in Chicago stayed about six months in treatment. But those boys, one of them stayed four weeks, the other one stayed about six weeks, I think it was. And 
And all that time, we were having to go to these outline meetings. And Kay was getting something out of it. And I wasn't. I really didn't want to be there. I didn't think I belonged, number one. And, uh, and this counselor, God love her, she a uh, little bitty woman about this tall. And the last Friday of that 30-day treatment of one of those kids, uh, she walked up to me before we left that day. And she said, you know, you might benefit to go to some open speaker meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. I said, me? For what? She said, well, if you go, you may hear, you'll hear enough stories. You'll hear some of your kids' stories. You'll understand how alcoholism has affected their life and how it's affected your life. And, and, and it would certainly be a way for you to be able to help them. I said, well, I guess if I had to help them, I guess I could go. So... The last Friday night in November of 1986, I went to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And there was a speaker meeting just like this, the old Preston group, about this many people in the room. I sat at the very back, as far back as I could get. And it wasn't because of smoking. I just didn't want to be too close to y'all. And uh, the guy got up there and told his story, and he just nailed me. And I'm thinking, man. Over, I, I went up and talked to him. I said, man, I, I, I really do appreciate you talking. I didn't know y'all did that. And, and I realized I was standing up about, 100, about 150 people, and I said, I'm going to get out of here. And I left. And I'm going down the stairs, and I ran into another guy, and I said, when do they do this again? He said, Sunday morning, 11 o'clock. Boom, Sunday morning, 11 o'clock, I'm back up there, sitting, listening. Different guy. Now, the first guy, the Friday night, I could identify some of his story, but between Friday night and Sunday morning, I couldn't identify with him anymore because I, I heard the things I didn't want to hear. He was an Aggie, for God's sakes. I wasn't an Aggie. His mama was a Sunday school teacher. Well, my mama wasn't a Sunday school teacher. His daddy was a deacon in the Baptist church. Well, my daddy was dead from alcoholism by this time. So I was all different from this guy. Sunday morning, as a young fellow from Arkansas, a rice farmer. I was different from him, too, but I understood what he said. So I started going to meetings of Alcoholic Anonymous, Alcoholics Anonymous to speaker meetings. I just go and hear step speakers and other speakers just loved going to hear y'all's story. Because I really knew that y'all hadn't really quit drinking. Not really. I mean, maybe you'd quit drinking scotch and vodka and bourbon. But I knew you still drank beer and wine. I knew that. And this is how I knew it. I'm a quick study. I'd pay attention. I'd hear y'all talking after the meeting. And you'd say, I want to go down to the El Phoenix and have some Mexican food. Well, you can't eat Mexican food and not drink beer. See, I knew that. Or they'd say, you want to go have some catfish. Well, you can't eat catfish and not drink beer. I knew that. So what I thought you did was I thought you drank beer and wine with your food and you quit drinking all this other stuff. That's what I kept doing. I just got drinking nothing but beer and with all of my meals. Um, and I will forget one time I, I had got I, this Mexican food restaurant I just mentioned we used to do that a lot and I'd go there for, at lunch and have three or four of those great old big mugs of cold beer you know you scratch the ice on or your fingernails off the side of it you know I used to love that I'd drink me three or four of those with lunch I'd go home and, at dinner time and I'd say okay what are you going to eat tonight she said, well, she'd say first. She said, where did you eat lunch? I said, well, I had El Phoenix. She said, oh, darn, that's what I wanted for dinner. I said, fine, let's go back there. I said, oh, yeah, I can eat it twice. Because I knew I was going to get me something to drink if I went back there. So that's what I did. And I kept going to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous and drinking nearly every day. 
I wouldn't drink before I'd go to the meeting. That seemed a little sacrilegious. You people would try to quit, and I'd go up there and go, <sighs> breathe my breath all of you. So I'd wait and drink after the meeting, and uh, it just seemed a little, a little more accommodating to do that. I'd been going to meetings for y'all about a couple of months, and I was having a good time meeting a lot of people, just, but I'm still drinking. I didn't tell you I wanted to quit. Nobody asked me if I wanted to quit, and I said I, I just didn't offer anything. I, they wouldn't ask me anything those those at those uh, open speaker meetings. Just they'd greet me and welcome me and all that kind of stuff. So I'd gone to have a have a physical, and uh, this doctor, uh, hey, uh, he he'd run a bunch of tests and and he said I'll, I'll give you a call in two or three days and we'll go over these results of this I said okay fine so in about three days a guy called and he said can you come up to my office right away I said why can't we talk about this over the phone he said oh no no I want to be looking you right in the eyeballs when we talk about this I thought uh oh I've probably got the big C. I'll be dead before I get there. I told Cash, you better come. I, I said, I'm not going to make it. I'll be dead before we get to his office. It's so bad, he can't even tell me what it is. She said, well, if it's that bad, I better go with you. So she goes with me, and we get to his office. He had a big old wood desk, and on the other side, he had two big leather chairs. And he comes around on there and pulls a little skinny chair up between our chairs. And he has all these charts, and he's flipping them and looking at them. He finally closes it. He said, I've got some good news and some bad news. He said, what do you want? I said, give me the good news, I guess. He said, okay, the good news is you have diabetes. I said, that's good news? He said, let me ask you something. How much do you drink? I said, oh, I drink a couple every day. And this was, it wasn't the first doctor that told me this. I'd gone to one a few years earlier because uh, I lied to him. But this one, I knew he didn't care how much I drank. He said, I don't care how much you drink. Drink all you want. He said, let me tell you what's going to happen to you when you, you keep drinking. With this diabetes, he said, you're going to come in here one of these days and have to take off your foot or move a leg or take out a kidney. He got real close to me, and he said, or you may never, ever be able to make love again. At that moment, you people had what I wanted, and I was willing to go to any length to get it. <laughs> and I didn't drink anything for about 10 days. And I calmly drank for 20 more months after that. And I can't tell you, I just didn't want to quit drinking. It just seemed like uh, unnecessary to me. And then the last couple of months of my drinking, I quit going to meetings, maybe two or three months. I just kind of quit going. I lost interest because I knew I wasn't doing what you guys were doing. I wasn't sincere about this. I wasn't even trying to quit drinking. And I just, that old adage of a head full of AA and a belly full of booze, it didn't work very well with me, or maybe it worked real well because it got to me, got to me to the place that I needed to get. And I had gone, quit going, and, and I was trying to talk her out of going. I said, boy, these old meetings, I wanted to take you to that new restaurant. And her answer would be, you know, I'd love to go to that new restaurant with you. It'll have to be before or after my meeting. Missed again. Next time I'd say, I, I want to take, don't go to that meeting. I want to take you to that new Tom Cruise movie or whatever it was opening. She said, I'd love to go to that movie, but it'll have to be before or after my meeting. Well, I just about had enough of this before and after meeting talk. And so she came in one night and I, uh, from a meeting, and I sullenly laid there and drank and watched the basketball game or whatever I was watching. And 
and I heard the car pull in the garage, and I was ready for it, boy, I was ready. And I heard the garage door go down, and I heard the back door open, I heard it coming down the hall, and I was ready, and I got my finger out, and I'm walking down the hall, and I said, let me tell you one thing, you don't make me happy anymore. She looked at me with those cold Al-Anon eyes. She said, I'm not responsible for your happiness, and walked right by me on down the hall. It made me so mad, I went to a meeting. Hadn't been to one in a while. Went to this group, and I just walked in the door. I just started, I just had to ratchet jaw. I started just talking to everybody. I said, I ran to this guy. I said, you know what she said to me tonight? And he said, what's that? I told him. He said, oh, man, she, she's right. I said, I don't want to talk to you. Let me go ahead and talk to this guy. I found another guy. I said, you know what she told me a while ago? And he said, what's that? And I told him. He said, man, get a life. I said, I don't want to talk to you either. I need to talk to a woman. A woman will understand what I'm saying. I looked down this long hall, and there was a little side door like this, and a light was shining through the, through the hallway down on that floor. So I walked toward that light, and I looked in that room, and I saw eight or ten ladies in there. One sitting by herself in a chair, and the rest of them were kind of milling around talking. I didn't know that was the Al-Anon room. I just walked right in there, and I stood beside her. I'd seen her around. I didn't really know her, but I'd seen her around. She looked friendly. And I walked up to her and I said, you know what she said to me tonight? She said, what, honey? Now, you got to watch them when they call you honey. They got something else on their mind. And she said, what, honey? And I told her. And she kind of grabbed me by the pants leg and kind of pulled me down to a chair right next to her. And then she did this, patted me on the knee. You got to watch them when they do that, too. She said, what, honey? And I told her. She said, oh, she's right. I said, she's not responsible. You are. But she said it in such a quiet, nice. And it was just like somebody poked a pin in my balloon and all the air was rushing right out of me. What that doctor had told me, the fact that I lost that first family, I never until that moment considered losing that first wife and family was had anything to do with my drinking. Until that very moment. And then what that doctor said was flashed right across my mind. If you don't stop drinking, um, you're going to lose yourself to me a piece at a time. And then the third thing, I'm going to lose the family I've got now. And all of that happened in just a second. And I went back to AA the next day and got a desire chip. And that was August the 27th of 1988. And from that night to this, I've not had a drink. I've not even really wanted a drink. It was removed that moment it was just gone it was lifted from me and i was one of those fortunate people i uh i i, I when i got here I, I ran i got to run around with a bunch of old timers and if you don't want the truth stay away from the old timers if you want to recover follow them anywhere they'll take you because they know the answer and that's what these guys did for me, them and their wives. They knew the answer. And everywhere they'd go, they'd take me. And a lot of places I didn't want to go, but I had too much respect for what they did and how they did it to ever tell them no. I remember one time, it was before I asked one of them to be my sponsor, but I was going everywhere with them. And, and I never did gunch about it or say, no, I don't want to go do this. I just, if at most I might dig my toe in the dirt, you know. But this one night, they'd asked me to go to this conference with them, this AA and Al-Anon conference. I said, I, I said, I really don't want to go. 
And that's all I said. I said, I really don't want to go. And he looked at me so kind. He said, let me ask you something. He said, why have you been running with us and hanging around with us and doing what we do? And I said, well, because I like the results of your lives. He said, if you want what we have, come do what we do. If you don't come do what we do, you'll never know how we got what we have. And he just turned and walked away. And I started following him again, and I never quit till the day he died. He's, he became my sponsor. And he's been gone now about nine years. Uh, he died of lung cancer. I can't tell you what that man meant to me. Uh, he taught me how to love another human being. He taught me about Alcoholics Anonymous, and he taught me about Al-Anon because his wife was a longtime member of Al-Anon, and they had a wonderful marriage and had, had a wonderful family and a wonderful life. And they taught us, Kay and I both, a lot about this program. But he taught me a lot about loving another human being. And, and, and really gave me my first understanding of God that I really ever had. And I, I can't tell you, I can't tell you what that, what that man meant to me. He died about nine years ago of lung cancer. He, uh, God, he loved AA. He was, he was, uh, about two months short of his 32nd AA birthday when he passed away. And I went out to see him about two weeks before he died. And, uh, and uh, I wanted to get there on a Sunday afternoon. His wife said, he's asking for you. So I went back to his bedroom and stood out on his bed. He was able to die at home under the hospice program. And that's another wonderful, wonderful program. But he was laying in that bed and he, we all knew he was just days away from death. And, uh, but he was real lucid that day. He had been in a lot of pain, but he, he was pretty well pain-free right at that moment. And I, So I'm sitting on the edge of his bed, and I looked him in the eye, and he had those bright blue crystal clear eyes. And I said, Jack, i got to ask you something. I said, has fear returned to you yet? And without hesitation, he said, no, no, not a bit. I said, how at a time like this can you lay in this bed and tell me you're not consumed with fear? He said, oh, that's easy. He said, I believe God is who he says he is. And I knew he meant that. I can't tell you how much strength I gained from him that day watching him die in dignity. Then he looked up at me and he said, you know, my old body's wearing out. But he said, God made it that way. But he said, my spirit's going to us. I feel him in every meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous I go to. I feel him right here in this room tonight. I can close my eyes and see him sitting right back there on the back row with his legs crossed and a cup of coffee in his hand. He'd rather be in a meeting of alcoholics and honest or helping some drunk more than anything in this world. And I miss him. He was going to five meetings a week about two weeks before he died. Couldn't drive anymore. He had to, somebody had to carry him, uh, drive him, but he could barely pull his oxygen tank and go to a meeting. But once he got there, he was home. And he loved Alcoholics Anonymous. And people in AA loved him. And I miss him to this very day. Those kids I talked about, none of them ever stayed sober. Uh, the first one, she stayed sober seven and a half years in Alcoholics Anonymous. And then she got in one of those old AA romances. Y'all probably don't have them here in Kentucky, but um, <laughs> we have them in Dallas, Texas, I'll tell you for sure. She, uh, they started, her and this guy started getting drunk back and forth to each other for about a year, and they, they both finally left the program. And 
Last time I heard it from him, I heard about him. He was living on the street in Tulsa, and she moved, got married, moved to Phoenix, Arizona, and she's just gotten a divorce just recently, and she's gone back to drinking. Uh, but she knows where this program is. She's been here. It is not up to me to go lead her back. I don't have to. As a matter of fact, I don't even have to worry about her. Every one of us, all of us are God's kids. If I am, she is. If she is, you are. God has no grandchildren. So we don't have to worry about her. She's doing what she's got to do, and I respect that. I'm going to leave her alone. Those other two, they didn't stay sober either. I told you that one, uh, he's over in Iraq tonight. I don't know if he's sober or not. I know he drinks. He may not be drinking over there tonight, but he drinks. And he got married and had a couple of kids. And alcoholism just ravaged the four of them. And they got he got divorced. And their mother took them back to Denver. And they, we don't get to see them hardly at all. Uh, we're going to get to see them in June for a couple of days. And they're going to come stay with us. But, and that, <clears throat> that third one that... that went to, to treatment. He, he didn't stay sober either. He's probably the most stable one of all of them. Uh, he's, uh, he's not sober, but he's responsible. And he, he got married and had a couple of kids. And now he's divorced. And, but he's got a job. And if he's drinking, I think he may uh, occasionally, but he doesn't do it to excess. And uh, maybe he's doing some controlled drinking. No, no, don't ask him. None of my business. It's like... It's none of my business on the other three. Just do what you got to do. We love you anyway, and that's all we can do. Those other two kids don't talk too much about, usually. Uh, that one, that, that youngest one, uh, we hadn't seen him uh, in the last, I guess, probably three years, two and a half, three years. He lives right in Dallas, but we don't ever hear from him or see him. Went through a stretch like that a few years ago. Went through six years, never never saw him, talked to him. He lived just in Dallas. That first one, though, she, uh, the one that I told you about her mother holding her over my head when she was just uh, nine months old. She got married when she was about 20 or 21 and had a child, and then they their marriage didn't work out, and they got a divorce. And so she was single for about nine years and, and remarried. And uh, as soon as they got married, they moved over to Hilton Head, South Carolina. And they stayed, they were over there a few months, and she called us one day to tell us that she was pregnant with twins. And, uh, you know, that we were as happy, I guess, as you can be about something like that. And, uh, and so we were, and, and certainly she was, and we didn't want to rain on her parade, of course. But she, uh, she had a, a care of about seven months. And uh, that last one I told you about I hadn't seen in a while this time it had been six years since we'd seen him he showed up on our doorstep and he'd been living uh, with his mother for a while and she couldn't afford his habits any longer she kicked him out and he was living in his car but his car was broken it was parked on the streets so I guess you say he was living in his, living on the street but anyway he was staying in his car he showed up at our doorstep. I wasn't home, and he wanted to know if he could come in and wash his clothes. He was trying to find a job. And Kay told him, sure, come on in. And we, you know, I got home, and we visited. He, he stayed for dinner, and he, you could tell he was really uneasy, and he wanted to leave. And, and I said, well, where are you going? And he said, well, I don't have anywhere to go. I said, well, why don't you spend the night here, and we'll talk tomorrow. 
So we had done this scene, the same scene, for about two or three days. And then the phone rings one day. And I don't know if you ever had any kids that leave and then come back. But at least ours, my experience, they'd take up right where they left off. they stay in the refrigerator, on the phone, with a TV clicker in their hand. And uh, our phone rang. And he grabbed that phone just like he'd been there all the time. And it was our daughter over in South Carolina. And I could see about his expression on his face, it was something wrong. And so he had to me the phone. And so it was her, and she was crying. And she said, I'm at the hospital. Her husband was out of town. She said, I'm at the emergency room, and they're going to take these babies. She said, my blood pressure is so low, they don't know if, I'm, if we're going to all three make it or not. And I could hear the fear and the, the, the shakiness in her voice. And I said, honey, why don't we just pray right here on the phone? And so I prayed with her. First time I'd prayed with her since she was probably three or four or five years old, maybe. And uh, I was teaching that little, now nah, lay me down to sleep prayer, or her mother was. But I'd say it with her sometimes. And, and so I prayed with her that day on the phone. And, and I said, "When give my number to the nurse there in the emergency room and, and have her call me, collect when this is over, and let me know how you all are doing. And so in an hour and a half or so, the nurse called. She said that the babies are going to be fine. Your daughter is going to, we're going to keep her in intensive care while her blood pressure is extremely low. We're going to watch her, but we, we think she's going to be okay. So about a week later, they get ready to go home to the hospital. And she calls back again to tell us, well, that son's still there, and he grabs that phone. And he starts admonishing her for not talking to him the week before. He hadn't seen her in a while either, and... Uh, about that time, I picked up the extension just to hear in time to hear her say, you don't understand, Kyle. I was in trouble, and I needed my daddy. And that was the first time that girl had said that since she was about six years old. I'd been out drunk all night, and she'd had her wreck on a bike or something, and had ripped her big toenail off, nearly off of her foot. And they wanted to take her to the emergency room, and she wouldn't go. I was the only one that she was going to let do something to that foot. And she laid there in agony all night long till I came home. That was the same girl that when she got married the first time, not only did I not get to walk her down the aisle, she called and said, please, don't even be in the church. That was the same girl who that day said, you don't understand. I was in trouble and I needed my daddy. I can't tell you about a guy like that being able to live long enough to benefit from something like that. Only in Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon have I seen those kind of things happen. And gosh, I have been so blessed. I have been so blessed for many, many years and I didn't even know it. A few years ago, there was, a, there was an old... Uh, Rabbi who was teaching a, a course in, in UCAL Berkeley on religious sciences and for a grad, graduate class. And one day he was in class, and uh, one of the grad students said, Rabbi, I have a question. He said, What is a blessing? The old rabbi kind of stroked his beard for a minute. He said, when God created the universe, he did so in six days. He made earth, moon, and stars.
and he looked at what he had say, made and said, this is good. He made horses and cows and pigs and goats and looked at what he had made and said, this is good. And he made fish and peas and lettuce and he looked at what he had made and said, this is good. The sixth day he made man but said nothing. Are there any conclusions? The guy said, yeah, people are no good. He said, well, that's a possible conclusion, but that's a bad translation. He said, in Hebrew, which is a language God spoke, God looked at what he had made and said, this is tov. What is tov, you ask? Tov means something is whole. Something, tov means something is entire. Tov means something is exactly the way it's supposed to be, and it can't be any other way. So God made earth, moon, and stars, tov. And he made horses and cows and pigs and goats, tov. And he made fish and peas and lettuce, tov. But people, people were not born complete. People were born full of holes, full of broken areas with lots of jaggedness. So what are you supposed to do? Well, if you're born male, you're supposed to be, you're supposed to grow up to be men. If you're born female, you're supposed to grow up to be women. You're supposed to grow up to be real, live human beings. Then he paused and he said, but as we walk our path, as we live life's journey, anything that gets behind us and pushes us forward, anything that gets in front of us and drags us ahead, anything that gets deep down inside of us where it's cold and it's dark, and there's no air there, and there's no light there. And it kicks and it pushes and it shoves till there is air there, till there's light there. Anything that does that is a blessing. And sometimes blessings don't feel good. And sometimes we don't even know they're a blessing until years later we look back at a situation at the time we thought would absolutely kill us. And it turned out to be one of the greatest blessings when I heard that story, I understood about my alcoholism. What I thought was a curse, what I thought was one of the worst things that could befall a human being, turns out to be one of the greatest blessings I've ever been given. Because of God, Alcoholics Anonymous, and people just like you. But for the grace of God, I could have missed it all. Thank you so much. <clears throat>